Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. I am uh, very excited to be here. Thank you all for coming. Um, I would like to thank the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute for inviting me to uh, give this talk. This is something that I secretly wanted to do for a long time. Um, here in this uh, auditorium where I attended a lot of other, uh, other talks. And I would like to thank uh, particularly Nahed for organizing everything and tolerating all the changes that we have to do. Uh, what I'm going to do today, and this is my first, I think, my first in-person talk in uh, three and a half years. I decided instead of reading a, a document, actually just telling a story. So bear with me. Some of the text that I'm going to read I put online, but uh, the rest of it is um, um, I'm just going to tell the story. So our hero, um, and he's an interesting hero, is Matteo Ricci, uh, a Jesuit a Jesuit uh, um, um, uh, a father who was made most of his career in China. He was born in Italy and he arrived in China in the 1580s after a very long trip all the way from Lisbon uh, via Africa and the Indian Ocean, India and then Macau and, and, and Canton and then he ended up in Beijing making a whole career. He's celebrated today as the um, uh, architect of the uh, dialogue between civilizations. In other words, the dialogue between Christianity or Christendom or Europe and, uh, um, um, and China. Because he, uh, his attempts to convert, you know, or to spread the Christianity in China were basically through dialogue as opposed to violence. Remember that distinction as we will continue. Um, again, one of, if you'd like a little bit of me, you know, trying to say where's, where's my intervention, my intervention is that there is a big world in between Europe and China, and that's the Islamic world. And what I will try to do today is bring Islam into the mix of this dialogue civilization and see how it is born and out of what circumstances it's born. Now, the first piece of evidence that I'm going to show you comes from a very, very important book that uh, Matteo Ricci writes. He writes it kind of as a journal as he proceeds. You know, he narrates his, uh, uh, um, his adventures in China. Um, he writes all sorts of notes. Um, and that book becomes very, very important in Europe. It's sort of a bestseller. It is translated into many European languages soon after he, uh, uh, Matteo Ricci uh, uh, finishes it, you know, and he dies in, in, in Beijing. And, you know, this is, um, um, one of the, this is a copy of the uh, first uh, page of, uh, of the book, of the, of the first page of the second book, and so on. Matteo Ricci arrives, and uh, this is, we are trying to get into the settings a little bit now. He arrives immediately, like his entrance to China is a place that we all know today as, a, as an island uh, full of uh, uh, casinos and so on. But in fact, at the time, it was um, it's a small peninsula, a small fishery peninsula called Macau in uh, southern China that belonged to the province of, of Canton. I'm going to talk how Macau became Portuguese and therefore, you know, became the starting point of Ritchie in, in few minutes. But all you should know that he goes there and his first visit to China, you know, in other words, his first visit from Macau to, uh, to China are pretty much from Macau 
um, to the city of Canton um, and then back before he's allowed or permitted to settle in China uh, uh, permanently. Macau was returned to the Chinese in 1999. Okay, after Hong Kong was returned in 1957, uh, 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 but the circumstances of Macau becoming part of the Portuguese Empire are very, very different than the circumstances of Hong Kong becoming part of the British Empire. So this is a picture of where we are in... Uh, yeah, I'm very proud of having that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not always it works. So this is where we are in the in the Indian Ocean um, at, at some point. You know, this is actually very very dense area, very very close. And you know, in order, if you want to go from Macau to Canton, you have to go here, get permission to go out, and then sail that river to the city. That's very that's going to be important. Here's a bit of, better picture uh, uh, of that. You know, and please, as you think about it, remember uh, the river system of the city of Canton right here. I'm going to discuss them in a minute. Okay, this is another picture in the late century, and there's a Jesuit mission from where he goes to China. No, so now let's. I'm going to begin by reading a paragraph that he writes in November 1582. Okay, and then I'm going to do uh, several things. I'm going to read the paragraph. You can read it together with me. And then I'm going to tell you that basically um, that Matteo Ricci tells a very big fat lie about Muslims in China. Um, and in order to do that, I'm going to uh, um, tell you a little bit or a taste on the history of Islam in China, I, uh, probably up to that, uh, that point. And then we will discuss you know, why he does this and clear him of that. Okay, so he goes in November 1582 to one of his visits into China, and then he writes in this book, he says as follows, the Chinese have always been afraid of foreigners, you know, especially when they viewed them as hostile and belligerent, as they could easily see the Portuguese, whose army and navy were the largest um, they have ever seen. Yes, now, so he discusses the certain hostility that the Chinese have towards the Portuguese. And then he says, igniting this fire, in other words, the fire of hostility towards the Portuguese, are the many Mohammedan Saracens who live in the city of Canton, who promptly, yes, promptly, as soon as the Portuguese arrived, they basically poisoned them against the, against the Portuguese, poisoned the Chinese against the Portuguese, and told the Chinese that these men from Francia, yes, as the Mohammedans call the Christians of Europe, yes? Um, and then he goes on on the whole idea why they can pronounce the R because everybody speaks Chinese, so they call them Folangji, yes? Um, these men from, Fra uh, from uh, 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 Francia, yes, are valiant men, conquerors of other people's kingdoms, yes? Etc., etc., etc. And then they have conquered also by military power the kingdom of Malacca and many, many other kingdoms. In other words, he describes a situation in which the Chinese are a bit naive about the Portuguese danger, and the people who tell them that these people are dangerous are, you know, the old adversaries of Christendom in Europe, the Muslims. And there are many Muslims in, in, in Canton, and they are the ones who teach the Chinese how to even name the Portuguese, as is Franks, you know, uh, Franks, etc., 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 and so on. Okay, and again, this is just a, a bridge with the key words that, that I'm showing, igniting this fire, Mohammedan Saracens, he calls them, and then men from Francia, yes, or Folangji. Okay, now, 
1584, he writes a letter to uh, another Jesuit. Okay, so two, hours, two years later, and this gives us a glimpse of how he views these Muslims. And he says the Chinese are divided into three sects. This would be Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism. Yes, not including small sects, many, many other religions, and without that of the Muslims. In other words, he recognizes that Islam is, exists in China, this way or the other. And he says, which, you know, when he talks about the Muslims, he says, which I do not know how, yes? have planted themselves among them. And by the way, the, Fre the, the Spanish, he writes this to a Spanish uh, uh, colleague, and the verb that he uses in Spanish is like also to be cemented. He talks about them as like people who basically planted themselves and they are stuck there, you know, kind of like a pain in the neck in some sort of a European uh, 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 plan, okay? And they are planted there uh, as well, and he doesn't know how they showed up there, which is very, very strange how he, why he doesn't know. Let us look at the, at the 16th century map of the Indian Ocean and talk a little bit about what is authentic in what I just read to you, uh, what Richie said. Okay? And we're talking about you know, the arrival of the Portuguese, first in the Indian Ocean, and then in the, um, in the western parts of the Indian Ocean, and only then after 1511 into the Chinese part of the Indian Ocean, or the Chinese-dominated part of the Indian Ocean, or I should say, the part of the Indian Ocean that the Chinese think they dominate or want, they domi want to dominate. Okay? So this is a map of the uh, Portuguese uh, uh, Empire in the 15th and the 16th uh, uh, century. You can uh, uh, admire uh, all the dates and, 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 and so on. It's a coastal empire that is developing, you know, with a very, um, um, with some African um, uh, enclaves and then, you know, a very big area in, uh, um, in India on the coast uh, of, um, of India. Okay, here's another uh, map that gives us a better view um, of a later, slightly la later uh, uh, period of that. Okay, now we are going to be talking a lot about these territories here, particularly the Straits of Malacca right here, which basically divide the Indian Ocean between its Chinese part and its Indian part. And the person who is most responsible for the Portuguese presence in that period is Afonso de Albuquerque. Okay. Albuquerque is a very, very busy man. You know, he fights a lot. You know, he takes advantage of a recent uh, um, invention that changes world history, which is basically the ability to put gunpowder on boats. Yes, I mean, gunpowder have been invented by uh, uh, the Chinese or discovered by the Chinese in the, in the 9th century, 8th century. In the Mongol period, they travel um, uh, uh, to Europe. You be we begin to see the use of cannons and the use of uh, uh, rifles in Europe. But the big, big, big score that changes uh, world history is, in fact, when you can put a cannon on a boat. Why? Because you need to shoot the cannon in a way that doesn't sink the boat where it's on. Now, when the Portuguese begin to do that, basically, this is the beginning of a naval warfare and a huge age, because now you're going to come from the, co from the sea and bomb a coastal city from the sea and have a huge impact on that city. And this is what this man does, and he does it all the time. 
This is, you know, um, uh, uh, much later, of course, depiction of very, very heroic, you know, and he's here attacking Hormuz. Yes, not very far from here. Okay, and you have a lot of drawings, and, uh, and uh, uh, this is, of course, a fortress that the Portuguese built after they captured Hormuz. This happens in 1507. Okay. In 1513, and I wish I could talk a lot more about that because I have a whole book just on that, on the failure of Aden. You know, he attacks Aden twice and fails. Um, and that sends a shockwaves um, among a lot, of, a lot of people in today's Yemen, but also in areas um, such in, in Africa, such as Ethiopia and so on. He fails to do that, but he compensates by uh, attacking and pretty much destroying a little part of, uh, of the city of Jida in. Um, in 1515. So there's a lot of activity in the Arabian Seas. Um, they capture Hormuz, and here we are, you know, um, this is um, a late 16th century codex with 72 nice paintings about Portuguese lives in the Indian Ocean. And here we are, here we are with some Portuguese having a feast. You can see who's be, who is uh, uh, serving them and so on. Um, this is how you know they understand their navy, you know their, their activities. And by the way, this is just outside the island of Sukutra. This is 1540. Okay. Um, and if you want to see a list of all of the naval activity in this area, you can see a whole list from 1501, from the moment that you know that basically soon after they get into the Indian Ocean, um, you have a lot of battles. Uh, most of them are actually very, very uh, uh, successful. Some of them, they have to repeat them. And I submit to you one thing. Most of these battles involve Muslim kingdoms, Muslim cities, or Muslim populations. In other words, even in India, you know, the people who, with whom they are fighting, you know, are Muslims. In addition to that, we have to put into the mix and just keep it in the background, we have a Mamluk navy. The Mamluks are based in Egypt, and they, therefore they are based in the Red Sea and in part in the Indian Ocean, and they are involved in all of these battles. And later on, we also have the Ottomans. In 1517, the Mamluk Empire gave way to the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire enters into the, uh, um, into the Indian Ocean. Um, there's a lot of economic interests, a lot of uh, 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 um, connections there that, that to be protected. And the Portuguese are fighting also with the Ottoman Navy as well. Okay? But we need to get to China. And before we get to China, we need to get to the momentous moment of 1510, uh, which is the arrival in Goa. Okay? Goa is a very, very important uh, uh, Portuguese settlement um, throughout the 16th century. And you know, Albuquerque is making a very, very serious uh, effort to capture it. And in the main, main battle is in 1510. Okay. What I want you to take from that is one detail about this battle. This is the same codices that I mentioned before. Um, this is a, a depiction of an Indian uh, Muslim from, uh, uh, from Goa and his wife. Yes, and the, um, the, one of the things that happens in this battle is that, you know, just before that, they had a, another quarrel with uh, uh, Muslims in Bijapur. And Albuquerque, who was, I think, was um, a very, very nervous person, you know, there's a very hectic career that he has there, punishes the Muslims of Goa, you know, for uh, the Bijapuri involvement in the battle, you know, very, very severely. There's a massacre in the city. Um, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, 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 bloodshed and so on and so forth. Okay, so this happens. I want to just say all of this is happening 70 years before 
before Matteo Ricci tells us that the Muslims of Canton are poisoning the Chinese against the Portuguese. Okay. Um, all of this basically in the, 15, uh, in the 1500s. This is a picture, um, 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 a painting of you know, a battle between the Ottomans and the, uh, the Portuguese in the Red Sea. So it's a very, very busy Indian Ocean. Lots of military activities. Okay. But we have, to move very, uh, uh, we have to move towards China. So after the establishment of the enclaves, uh, the Portuguese enclaves in, in Goa, basically the Portuguese uh, ended up establishing the Estado da India, which is basically the Indian part of their empire, from where they are going now to attack or to try to reach China. Okay, here's another uh, uh, picture, you know, again, Plenty of belligerence is going on here. Plenty of warfare all the time. Okay, uh, well, not all the time. And what we want to do is to get to Malacca. The Straits of Malacca basically divide the Indian Ocean. Okay, and there's a very nice sultanate. You know, the Indian Ocean. If in the 8th century the Indian Ocean was a Buddhist ocean, you know, by the 10th century it's a very, very Muslim uh, uh, ocean with a lot of coastal sultanates, um, such as the Sultanate of Malacca. And basically that controls the connection or the pass between the Indian part and the Chinese part and vice versa. Here's Malacca again. Now, Albuquerque is really hot on Malacca. Um, and it's a mixture of navigation, sailing, discovery, conquest, religious zeal, but also trade and commercial interests. Okay? And he writes in his commentarios or in his diaries, he says, my, when I go to Malacca, just before he goes to Malacca, he writes, my service is to perform to our Lord in casting the Moors. Yes? out of this country, the Muslims, casting the Muslims out of this country. I hold it as very certain that if we take this trade of Malacca away from their Muslim hands, Cairo and Mecca are entirely ruined. And Venice will have no species to be conveyed except that which her merchant go and buy in Portugal. I will quench the fire of the sect of Muhammad so that they, it may never burst out again hereafter. Okay? Now, you see the religious uh, zeal there, um, pretty much there. You see an echo of European understandings, uh, European Iberian understandings uh, and depictions of Muslims with the use of the word Moor, but also you see a hint that there's something about trade going on. He mentions Cairo, which is the Mamluk Empire at the time. He mentions uh, uh, Mecca, basically part of the trade of the spices in the Hejaz, you know, very, very old uh, trade routes via the Red Sea, you know, of Indian Ocean goods and commodities, but he also mentions Venice, okay? The Venetians, the good Italian, you know, Christian Venetians have been trading with, you know, the Mamluks and with other Muslim uh, uh, Mediterranean uh, uh, powers from, uh, um, uh, within, by uh, buying spices, you know, from the Indian Ocean. And the way it works, remember, there's no Suez Canal. The way it works is basically you get the, you get the stuff, you move it up the Red Sea, and then, you know, you get it to Alexandria, Alexandria on cameras, and then you send it all the way across the Mediterranean to Venice. That makes the Venetians very, very rich in Europe, because Europe needs the spices that are coming from the Indian Ocean. And all of that, 
you know, he brings together. And Malacca is so important that Tome Piresh, who is a Chinese, who is a Portuguese diplomat, you know, with a failed uh, diplomatic mission to China later on, he says, whoever is Lord of Malacca has his hands on the throat of Venice. That suggests to you what an understanding of a globalized world it is. In other words, you know that if you catch, capture these straits, you're basically going to sit on the, on the neck of the Venetians and choke them uh, economically. Okay, and remember, this is before telegraph, before the internet, before stock markets, you know, with barely, you know, only, only um, two decades after, you know, the sailing and the discovery of America. And the conquest of Malacca, of course, just a, a year after uh, the conquest of uh, Goa in 1511, and it's a major battle, okay? Um, this is how it is remembered by the Portuguese. Um, and now I'm going to tell you a little bit about how Albuquerque himself describes that battle. So he arrives in the bay there of Malacca, and it's, since it's a major, you know, uh, uh, traffic area uh, in the Indian Ocean, he sees there some Malay boats, he sees there some Gujarati boats, you know, Muslim Gujarati boats from India, and he also sees there some five Chinese boats, really, really big boats, okay? And what he does first, he tortures the Gujarati boats. He first of all destroys the boats from uh, Gujarat with his, uh, 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 with his, with his uh, uh, cannon, okay, with his cannons. And then the Chinese who view all of that and they see these weapons for the first time, they're really, really frightened, okay. And they try to negotiate something with him. They are afraid he's going to do the same thing. And Albuquerque says. You know, all I need from you is just some piece, big pieces of wood. You know, the Chinese boats are really, really big. I need some pieces of wood from you so you can help me disembark and attack Malacca. Okay? And I'm going to spare you if you go to China, if you go back to China and you carry the news of what I did here. In other words, he wants the Chinese to know what kind of capability he has, and he wants the Chinese to know what he's doing. Okay? He's not hiding it. Okay? And he says there, you know, the Chinese did as Alfonso de Albuquerque ordered. They give him some wood, they assist in the, they give some logistics for the, for the attack, and then they rush back to China completely frightened with all of that. This is how Albuquerque is remembered in Malacca. You know, a boat, you know, a, a proud Portuguese man with lots of cannons. Remember the cannons and remember the artillery, okay? Now. This is Ming China in the 1580s, and it's slightly, it's not very, very different from Ming China in the 1510s. So this is where, you know, the emperor in Beijing hears the news about what happened in Malacca. And Malacca, basically, as far as the Chinese are concerned, is a vassal kingdom of the Chinese. Okay? And now, I'm going to take a quick big, uh, open a big parenthesis, and we'll talk a little bit about, you know, how the world is seen from China. Okay, so the Ming Dynasty was founded in the 1368 uh, by the father of this man, but this man is very, very important, the Yongle Emperor, you know, he uh, comes to power in, the in, in 1402, he murders his uh, nephew and then become, becomes a very important imp uh, uh, emperor, and then he does something really, really remarkable. He sends out to the Indian Ocean no less than seven expeditions led by a Muslim admiral, a Chinese Muslim admiral, yes, named Zheng He, all the way to different places in the Indian Ocean. It's a major, major, major operation. We're talking about 
hundreds uh, of boats. We're talking about 27,000 soldiers. Chinese soldiers on these boats with all of these expeditions. They get all the way to uh, the Red Sea and to Mecca. They visit Africa. They visit the Gulf. In other words, they visit in all the places that the Portuguese have visited before. Okay, um, and. Uh, and what they do at that point, you know, they, re they map the Indian Ocean. In other words, they map the world of the Indian Ocean, which, is cons which they call the world of the ocean shores, which is something that, you know, basically in, in theory at least is something that, you know, has to report to them in the sense that they are the central kingdom. In other words, they don't own these territories, but it's a form of, you know, tributary diplomacy. In other words, we carry a big stick, you know, show you how many soldiers we are, and you're just going to be nice to us, okay? By the way, the Chinese celebrate these expeditions in 2005. This is the beginning, in 2005, this is the beginning of them, you know, making a comeback into the Indian Ocean. They actually harp this idea of the anniversary of these expeditions, you know, and this is a contemporary painting of, uh, of uh, uh, Zheng He, okay? Now, how Islam comes into the, into the picture, okay, or Chinese Islam in that point, okay? I mentioned that the admiral was a Muslim, and this was not a coincidence, because the people who bring a lot of knowledge over the centuries, naval and maritime knowledge to China, are Muslim sailors and Muslim uh, merchants who've been trading with, uh, uh, with China uh, uh, for centuries since the establishment of the Abbasid Caliphate. Yes, uh, one of the most important thing, one of the things that I'm very, very proud of that I had a very, very small fo footnote in is the translation um, of a book called Akbar Silwan Hind by someone whose name is Suleiman Tajer and another person, Al Sayrafi, that NYU Abu Dhabi Library of Arabic Literature translated and published here, you know, in one of the earliest uh, uh, publications. Um, and this is basically the knowledge of the Indian Ocean as it was streamlined, you know, uh, between the Chinese um, and the, uh, um, between the Chinese and the Arabs in earlier uh, period. The Chinese in the, ten, in the 11th century, 12th century, wrote a book called the Jufanji, which is basically organizing the world, the Indian Ocean, based on Arab knowledge. You know, and this is what they do. This was in the 12th century, yes. But during these expeditions that I am mentioning, mentioned before, in the 13, uh, in, in the, between the 1310s and the 1340s, a Chinese Muslim scribe on the boat by the name of Ma Huan, yes, goes with the boats and they, whatever they visit different sultanates, different little kingdoms, different locations in Africa and in the Red Sea, he writes them down, you know, in Chinese. And then in the, um, and, and basically he produces something that we call the comprehensive survey of the shores of the ocean, of the Indian Ocean. That's the world that the Chinese know from the, from, uh, from the beginning of the 15th century. That's the world that the Portuguese are now disrupt, disrupting a century later, okay? And the relationship are cordial. I mentioned there was no violence, yes. Um, and this is a famous giraffe. It actually doesn't come from Africa. It was a gift from the Sultan um, of Bengal, uh, Saifuddin Hamza Shah, you know, who in 1410, you know, as a gift to the great Emperor Yongle, sent a giraffe from Bengal all the way to uh, China. It was immortalized by this, uh, by this painting, yes. 
Um, this is the Sultan of Brunei, you know, a young man, Abdul Majid uh, Hassan. You know, he was visiting the emperor. You know, he passed away on the way to Beijing. He passed away and he was uh, uh, um, um, uh, buried in, in, in Nanjing, which was the capital of the Ming at that time. And his burial was preserved. You know, the Chinese were honoring him as basically a king, a vassal king coming to, uh, uh, to honor the, to honor. Uh, uh, to, honor, uh, to honor them. There are several Chinese Muslim communities that were created not because of migration, but simply because, you know, they were accompanying a, a small uh, uh, Muslim king, a small Muslim sultan, who, minor Muslim sultan, who was going to visit the, the emperor of China and then passed away in China and was buried in China, and then a small community was created around, um, around the, the tomb. Okay, and you know they are still commemorating the visit, etc., 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 to this day. Okay, so this is the world of the Chinese, and now you know we're back in 1511, and Albuquerque is going to disrupt that world. Not him exactly, but after the conquest of Malacca, he basically returns because he wants to have another, you know, um, another chance at Aden and in other places. So he goes back all the way from Malacca back to India, and then from there he goes to the Red Sea. But some Portuguese boats sail from Malacca to Canton. In other words, they sail east. And there's one incident that we have evidence for from Chinese sources. What they did. They entered into the they entered the city um, uh, from the river. Yes, the city is basically on the two river banks, and they bombed both sides. They tried to frighten everybody on the city. They bombed uh, both sides, made a lot of noise, frightened everybody, and apparently they tried to kidnap some uh, some children, okay, some boys, okay. Now this is the birth of another rumor that was going on. Yes, and. In the time you have it in the Chinese records, basically the, 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 the Portuguese are cannibals. Okay? And here is a completely fictional Chinese depiction of how Portuguese cook children. Okay? I hope you have a chance to, to read the whole thing. I'm not going to read it. Yeah. Now, fast forward from that incident to 1522 23. You know, we have a small uh, war between the uh, uh, Chinese and the, um, um, and the Portuguese. You know, this was overlooked, uh, but recently a very, very gifted, prolific scholar by the name of Tony Andrade actually was, began writing about that, you know. And there's a dem the, the, one of the elements that I want you to see here is two things. You know, you see, first of all, God so fit to deal with them, with the Chinese, in such a way that they departed from the encounter, much damaged by our artillery, with the death of many of their people. This is a, a Portuguese record of that war. Okay? In other words, the Portuguese are coming, taking advantage of their artillery, you know, trying to defeat the Chinese. But the truth is that the Chinese really quickly acquire you know, uh, that kind of artillery themselves, and they fight back. And there is an impasse between Portugal and China at that point. Okay? Um, the Ming view, okay, this is Wang Hong, a Ming official, uh, talking about the superiority of Portuguese artillery. He says, I dare say that this, since ancient times, no weapons have ever surpassed these powerful, violent ones. In other words, naval artillery is really, really shocking. But you know, they acquire this, and they are quite capable of defending themselves. And here are some Chinese uh, cannons and so on. Funny enough, 
In Chinese, the word for artillery is Folangji, yes, which is the Chinese pronunciation for frank, okay? And it becomes also the word for these francs as well. In other words, if you say franc in Chinese in the 1520s, you mean two things. You mean a Portuguese person and you mean also artillery, okay? The two things are synon become synonymous in their mind. Okay. Remember that, by the way, that when Ritchie is writing in 1582, he says, this is, Franks is the name that Muslims in Europe call Christians. Okay. It's a completely different definition that he gives you, a medieval definition that comes from the Crusades. Now, and from that moment on, if you follow, if from the 1520s on, if you follow the, the Chinese sources, you see plenty of really, really, really horrible, some of them, you know, to a certain extent justified, not the cannibalism, but the other ones are satisfied, very horrible depictions of the, uh, of the Franks. For example, the Folangji are marked by their cruelty and by their guile, and their weapons are better than those of all the other foreigners. In recent times, they sailed here in their large ships and came abruptly into the Guangdong province. The sound of their guns shook the city and the suburbs. Okay, and then you have another one, you know, pirates, Portuguese pirates, Portuguese spies are trying to enter China in different ways, and the Chinese keep pushing them back. They also, um, uh, um, some of them are, are executed a uh, lot. This is a captain, you know, and the, now the Chinese begin also to transliterate, you know, um, words, you know, so, so in, uh, in Chinese. So they talk about someone who's Captain Mo and others. They came here. They pretended that they are basically diplomats from another country, and they are offering uh, 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 products as tribute and so on and so forth, but you know, the, the Cantonese uh, authorities in Canton basically said these, these people do not belong in the, in the world of the ocean shores that we know. You know, they're really horrible. They don't have any documents. We don't know who they are. You know, they cannot be trusted um, uh, and so on and so forth. Okay. And then they say below that, you know, the Folangji, in other words, the Franks, are not a tribute-bringing country. Further, it had invaded a neighboring vassal and acted barbarously and violated the laws. Okay, so they know pretty, pretty well who the, these, these Franks are. They don't need anybody to tell them who they are, okay? And then another record, you know, from uh, um, another person, you know, uh, again, you see how they transliterated it, Pedro Biedulu, you know, tried to attack, uh, um, tried to attack with his troops, you know, we kept, we, 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 we caught them and, you know, we executed them and other, some other valiant men with him who kept coming. The area between Malacca and Canton is full of Portuguese adventurers. They are now in Japan. They are now in Korea. They buy ginseng. They trade in boys. They do all sorts of things, you know, uh, stuff there. And the Chinese basically are trying to keep them away from their shores. Okay. And none, none of this is pretty much authorized by the Portuguese government. The Portuguese government sent two diplomatic missions to China. Both of them failed. And some of the diplomats were even incarcerated in Beijing. Okay. Now, let us remember how Richie tells this whole story many, many decades later. He basically says, you know, that these men from Francia, as the Mohammedan calls the Christians in Europe, okay? In other words, he basically talks about a European scene in which, uh, as if, you know, the Muslims are the ones who are bringing the news to the Chinese. But as we can see from the records, the Chinese are fully aware of what's going on. They don't need any Muslim in Canton to tell them what's going on, okay? Now, 
What's the story with the word franc in this context? Well, if you read in Byzantine sources of the Crusades, so you have the word frangoi that basically refers to the French origins of many of the Crusaders. And then in Arabic, you have the word ifranj, alifranj, yes, uh, or frang, you know. So in the medieval world, in the wake of the Crusades, when you want to say basically a, a, a Christian Crusaders, you use the word franc. Okay? That's in the Middle Ages in the Euro-Mediterranean world. But if you move in time and if you move east, you see a completely different story. The word franc in Persia and in India and in elsewhere in the Indian Ocean actually is detached from its Christian uh, 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 meaning. You know, it has nothing to do with Christianity and the Crusades. And it basically means a European foreigner um, in those, uh, um, in those uh, areas. Okay? Um, and basically everybody is using this term. Firangis, Ferengis, Frank, etc., etc., etc. Everybody's using these terms, and it doesn't mean to be uh, a Christian at all. It actually means a foreigner in the East or something uh, like that. You can read here, you have a lot of uh, things. For example, I'm just going to mention one uh, case. There was a guy named Sancho Piresh. He converted to Islam and became a major artillery uh, person in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, one of the small uh, Indian sultanates. And after his conversion to Islam, he assumed the name of Firangi Khan, in other words, the foreigner Khan. Okay? In, so it has nothing to do with religion, as Richie tries to convince us. Okay? Now, those impasses and those wars and the failures of the Portuguese actually to have a hold in China, yes, produces a very, very different history than before. If the history of Albuquerque before is very, very boastful or full of conquests, full of successes, we captured Hormuz, we destroyed this, we destroyed that, we have Goa, all of that, we captured Malacca, we want everybody to know what we're doing, you know, now we have a completely different situation. You have Portuguese people ex being executed and labeled as pirates and spies and bandits in, in China. Portuguese diplomats are actually incarcerated in Beijing. Um, and the whole thing is very, very sad, actually. So sad that in, the 15, in 1552, you have a very a book that you know, this, uh, talks about you know, all the Portuguese escapades in the Indian Ocean. It's called Dakaras de, 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 de Asia, okay? now the Asian decades, the great things that we do. Okay, so this is the image in the 1550s, yes? But in the beginning of the 17th century, you have a novel that is coming out by someone named Pinto. And this is a kind of a sad novel. You know, the, one of the peak moments of that is like dated to the, that he basically is like the 1540s. You know, the narrator of this uh, uh, document finds one of the, uh, goes to China and he visits China and then he finds, discovers one of the Portuguese diplomats after decades of incarceration doing prison labor in the Great Wall uh, there. In other words, you have this, the image of the Portuguese, or even of themselves in Asia changed dramatically, you know, from that of success to actually some sort of an impasse and even failure when it comes to settle in China. Okay. Things improve a little bit in 1554, you know, when finally the, the, there is a Portuguese-Chinese agreement. 
yes. Uh, Captain Leonel de Sousa, you know, signs a, an agreement with the government of Canton, and the government of Canton is doing it for two reasons. First of all, they're fed up with all of these people. You know, they want to regulate it a little bit. Plus, there is a, a slight economic decline in the city. So they think it might be better to actually have an agreement with these people who are keep coming from the west, okay? And they give them the peninsula uh, of Macau, and it's a terrible rent. They are horrible landlords. They basically say, you can sit here, and whenever you want to trade with us and live in Canton, you can, we will open the gate for you and allow you to come in. When you get out, you have to leave. You can't carry weapons. And whenever we want, we're basically going to keep you there locked in that particular place. And the rent is very, very, very high as well. Okay? And everybody is complaining about it. This is not colonialism. This is basically a very, very bad you know, uh, uh, land Lord uh, uh, situation, okay? And the Sousa, by the way, he tells his countrymen, please do not identify as Franks, okay? I mean, we have this is a very, very bad reputation we have as Franks. Try not to do that, okay? Don't self-identify as Franks. And soon enough, you know, only a decade later, there's a Chinese source that if you look at it, it's amazing. Someone showed up in Canton and says, I'm from a country called Pulitudia. Yes, this is how the Chinese transliterated that. Yes, and they were following the, the Sousa's advice, you know, to change their names and call themselves Portuguese instead of Franks. But the Chinese, you know, remained suspicious and, you know, they didn't like it. There was a very dry notation there. There is no Indian Ocean country called Pulitudia. These are perhaps the guide for agents of the Folang G. Okay. So, First of all, you can admit that you watched Deep Space Nine. So the image of the the image of the uh, um, the, the the Franks or the Ferengi are like the image of the Ferengi in Star Trek. You know, people who are extremely greedy. You can't trust them. You know, they create this network of trade all over the place. You know, it works better in the United States. I admit that, <laughs> um, um, and so on. Okay, let's move forward and summarize. You know, the problems that I'm trying to suggest with Richie's account. Richie's basically tells us that, you know, the Chinese knew nothing about the Franks, you know. All they knew, uh, they were quite rather, rather naive. The people who poisoned them against the, 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 Portu against the Portuguese are the many Muslims who planted themselves in the city of Canton. They ignited that fire, okay. Well, it looks like, you know, he's talking about something that, you know, is quite dated certainly not belong in his time, and certainly have nothing to do with Muslims who live in Canton, okay? It belongs to a very, the image that he tried to create belongs to a very, very different world, okay? Now let's talk a little bit about, you know, the, the terms that he uses, the terminology he uses for uh, uh, Muslims. He calls them Mohammedans, yes, Maometani, but he also calls them Saraceni. Okay. The Saracens, Saracen is a very, very uh, uh, Mediterranean image, medieval image of the Arab or the Muslim. Uh, pay attention here that we see a lot of Mediterranean medieval imagery already. Moors, you know, uh, Saracens, etc., etc., etc. Okay, so this is the image that he is basically depicting. And when you read this, you don't think that these people are Chinese Muslims. You think that they are basically some Arabs who found themselves and planted themselves in Canton. Okay? He really wants us to think that this is a scene from the Crusades. Okay, where Saracens and Franks were fighting. Something that looks like this.
Okay? He really depicts this whole thing like basically as a kind of a prelude to a religious war, not a war about conquest or trade and failed diplomacy, etc., etc., etc. Okay? But who are the Muslims of China? I already said before, you know, that there was there were some Muslim uh, settlements in China, you know, as early as the 9th century when the Indian Ocean was becoming more and more Muslim, and there were communities particularly in the southern coast of China, in Canton, and in another uh, province called Fujian, you know, where merchants, uh, Arab merchants settled down, you know, and traded with the Chinese, and over the years became, you know, part of the Chinese population. They have adopted, they, some of them intermarried, they have adopted the Chinese material culture, they have lost the Persian or the Arabic, you know, ethnic uh, 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 markers, um, and they basically became Chinese, but they kept their faith, okay? This is not what Matteo Ricci wants us to think. He wants us to think that the, basically these are medieval Arabs who settled there and you know, all they do is plotting against Christians, okay? But we have another Jesuit, 40 years after uh, um, Matteo Ricci, someone, a Portuguese by the name of Alvaro Semedo, he, he was in Canton, he was living in Canton, and he writes a book um, on you know the great monarchy of China, you know descriptions of, of China and so on, and he has an interesting passage about the Muslims of Canton, the ones that he sees and lives with, and he says there are moreover in China Moors in great abundance, not in all the provinces, not in every city, but yet in the more principal. They speak the language of the country and know nothing of their own tongue. In other words, these people do not speak Arabic. Okay. A few words only accepted, probably from the liturgy, from Islamic liturgy. In their physiognomy, nose, eyes, bird, and face, they are altogether like the Chinese. This is, by the way, 1655 English translation of the book, and this is why you have that weird uh, uh, spelling. Okay. They are merchants, physicians, etc. They have offices in the tribunals. They study and they are admitted to the examinations. In other words, they take the Chinese civil service exams as good Confucians. And come many times to be mandarins, but not of the great ones. Okay, he's very, very careful about that. For the most part, they stop at the degree of the licentiate. In other words, you have plenty of people in China with a BA and an MA in the civil exams. No one make it to the PhD. Okay. <laughs> Yes, there's, if you, there's a whole civil examination uh, a system there with different degrees and so on and so forth. So basically, he actually talks about Muslims who are seriously integrated with the Chinese population. They look like them, they speak like them, you know, they even take the civil service exams, etc., etc. They know nothing of their tongue. Remember, Matteo Ricci told us, you know, that basically the word Frank is an Arab import. As the Muslims in Europe call the Christians in Europe, etc., etc., etc. In fact, Ricci himself, in the 1590s, already in the already you know about 10 years after he wrote the first notation that I read uh, uh, for you, he actually gives you a very. He now moves much north. He's closer to. He's in Nanjing and Beijing. You know, met people, and he now gives you a fairly a much better accurate descriptions of the Muslims of China. And compare this to the passage that I read before, and he says. 
Since in the far western regions, China borders on Persia, at various times, many followers of the Mohammedan faith entered this country. And their children and descendants multiplied so much that they have spread all over China with thousands of families. They are residing in nearly all provinces where they have sumptuous mosques, recite their prayers, are circumcised, and conduct their ceremonies. But as far as we know, they do not disseminate their faith. In other words, they're not doing what he's doing, okay? Um, and they do not try to obtain converts or publicize their faith. And they live subject to Chinese laws and in great ignorance of the Chinese sex. In other words, they don't know much of the Chinese religions. They follow the Chinese law and that's it, okay? And they are held in low opinion by the Chinese. For these reasons, they are treated as native Chinese. And not being suspects of plotting a rebellion, they are allowed to study the Confucian classics and enter the ranks of the bureaucracy. Many of them, having received official rank, abandoned their old beliefs, retaining only the prohibitions against eating pork to which they have never become accustomed. In other words, you should imagine, you know, a high-ranking Muslim Mandarin who passes as a good Confucian Chinese and no one is ever going to get him out of the closet until suddenly pork is on the table and then he says, I can't eat it, okay? Now, I have a big, big deal uh, reading of this whole thing. I, I think I know who told him that thing. This is a very intimate scene that he seemed aware of. He couldn't have witnessed that. I think I, 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 in the diary, I know who told him that. And that person wasn't a Muslim, but also someone who doesn't eat pork, which, who is a Jew. Okay? And that's why he knew. Now, another parenthesis. By pure chance last week, someone from, uh, through uh, uh, Mark's Good Connections, you know, introduced me to something that I'm going to see tomorrow, inshallah, tomorrow morning, which is a very, very rare Quran that was produced by some of these Muslims that we are talking about uh, today. This is uh, a Quran uh, from the late 17th uh, century, by my reckoning, 16787. I hope to, be, uh, to uh, make sure about it even tomorrow. Um, and it is, um, it is by someone who in the Arabic uh, self-identifies as Abdullah Sini. That's amazing, okay, that he calls himself Abdullah Sini, because it means that this is someone who actually travels between China and the Arab and the Islamic world, because why would he call himself the Chinese Abdullah, yes, or Abdullah the Chinese, yes? And in the, in the Chinese here, um, he writes a little bit that he writes this, he produces this Quran for posterity, and so on and so forth. But I can tell you, and I don't pretend that, you know, I have a PhD in the ch classical Chinese examination system, that the conventions of classical Chinese here are a little bit off. In other words, this is an educated person, but not a lot, okay? And I'm sure that if you scrutinize the Arabic, you'll find some mistakes in the Arabic. Um, a Quran that I, had, that I examined uh, about a decade ago, um, that was produced in China in different places had mistakes between Lam and Ra because, you know, the person was unable to pronounce them anymore uh, uh, correctly. And also he said that he's producing this Quran for posterity and also because he wants to be a good Muslim and in this Ramadan he's going to fast one day. Okay, so you see here the people sometimes, you know, they leave the faith, you know, it's just, you see the struggle of a migrant community in different uh, locations and what happens with, uh, uh, with integration. By the way, Abdullah Sini also produced the, this Quran for the occasion of Ramadan. Okay, um, and God willing, tomorrow I will be in Sharjah and I'll send you a picture holding that Quran if they let me hold it or very, very near it. Okay, now, 
Semedo, who I mentioned before, struggles with this question of integration. And he has a very interesting notation in his, uh, um, in his uh, diaries, in his book. He says, these Muslims, their Muslims are there in China like the Hebrews in Spain. Okay? Merchants and doctors, but they carry more respect. Now, let us remember he writes this in 1680. In other words, he writes this about 130 years after the Muslims and the Jews uh, have been expelled from Spain, and those Moriscos and Conversos who stayed in Spain are actually live as openly as Catholics, and only secretly they live as Muslims and Jews. Okay? That's the analogy that he's making, because at the time that he's writing, he's Iberian himself, he's fully aware of the fact that there are no open Jews or open Muslims in, in, uh, in Spain, but he makes this analogy of the Converso community in Spain. In other words, people who have certain conflicts between their external appearance and their internal faith, and etc. And he even mentions that, you know, they do service communities. In other words, they, they're merchants and doctors, they don't own land, and they carry more respect in China than the Converso community in Spain. He totally knows what he's talking about because, you know, this is the time where it's the height of the Inquisition. Okay. Now, this brings me to say that in all counts there is a serious problem in what Matteo Ricci tells us about the Muslims of Canton. He tells us that there are many. He tells us that they are very influential, you know, basically they convince the Chinese how to think and even how to call the Portuguese, yes. They are the ones who basically pretend to be the carriers of news from the Indian Ocean as if the Chinese didn't know this uh, uh, um, um, on their own. And they use medieval Arab terminology for, uh, that comes out of the Crusades. All of this is wrong. All of this is wrong. Okay? And that raises three questions. First of all, why does he say that, which I'm going to leave to the end, and how he comes to this idea that this is what he wants to do. Okay? And now, let us think a little bit about the, what the Portuguese have been doing in the Indian Ocean and, and, and also in Northern Africa. They have been fighting their way to China, mostly with Muslims. Okay? And in the Portuguese literature of the period, you know, this becomes the, the Moor or the Muslim becomes to play a special role in this journey, a negative one. So, for instance, the Loisides, the Loisides by the, the famous poet Camões, okay, which is a book that probably when uh, uh, Matteo Ricci was in Lisbon preparing for his journey, you know, to China, you know, he probably read uh, um, or heard about, you know. The, this book discover, uh, describes the travel of Vasco da Gama uh, from Portugal all the way to the Indian Ocean. And there's a line there that is amazing. The arts of falsehoods and the Moors prevail. The Moors I know, I knew, for the fraud prepared. In other words, the Moor, yes, is not just, you know, resisting, you know, Portuguese conquests. He also uses fraudulent tax, uh, uh, tactics. He tells lies, you know. He, he sabotages their, their movement, you know, which is supposedly, you know, uh, ordained by the divine. He sabotages their movements by telling all sorts of fraudulent things and so on and so forth. I should mention here that Albuquerque was using a heavy duty. A lot of spies, you know, are moving around. Jews, Armenians, Muslims, you know, all sorts of people. Remember that when he goes to Malacca, he basically captures the Chinese and he says, I'm 
going to spare your lives. Go home and tell the news, spread the news. So this kind of a rumor, uh, Amir, goes on in the Indian Ocean uh, uh, all the time. The Muslims come to be the people who sabotage this great Portuguese enterprise, and one of the things that they do is spray, uh, 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 spread falsehoods about the Portuguese. Matteo Ricci is using that. You know, he's using exactly this Camões image. You know, when he basically depicts the Cantonese Muslim, yes, as someone who spreads falsehoods about the Portuguese. Okay. Now, but I think we can look at it in a different way. Perhaps Matteo Ricci is actually doing something a little bit more critical. Perhaps he himself is critical of the fact that the Portuguese are valiant men, brutal men, who go and bomb cities and do all sorts of things. Perhaps he doesn't like it himself, but he doesn't want to say it. Okay? And let us read a translation of Matteo Ricci's book, which I read before, the same paragraph by a French Jesuit who lived about 30 years after Matteo Ricci in China, Nicolas, uh, Nicolas Trigot. And there, he basically begins with, you know, in the past years, the Portuguese have traversed immensurable stretches in the ocean, etc., etc. He, in this translation, he embellishes a little bit. He puts a little bit more of his own in the translation. Okay. Um, and then he, but, and that's the exact same paragraph in terms of the location of the book. But now, you know, translated by Trigot with a little bit of. Uh, 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 embellishments, and if you read it, you see that he repeats what Matteo Ricci says, but he plants the sentence there, he says, their suspicions, in other words, the suspicions of the Chinese, uh, the, the suspicions of the Muslims against the Portuguese, not wholly void of reason, prevented the entrance of the Portuguese legation as soon as it was suggested. In other words, he says, yes, the Portuguese diplomats failed to enter China because of the Muslims. But what the Muslims were suspecting the, the Portuguese of doing was not without reason. So we have the hint here of a, critic, critic, uh, a critical voice against the Portuguese escapades in, that, uh, in, that, uh, in, the, in, in the Indian Ocean at the time. And I think that Trigot here is teasing it out out of Matteo Ricci's own paragraph. Matteo Ricci doesn't say that. But Trigot is now hinting that this is basically what he was saying. That's what I'm submitting to you. In other words, what I'm suggesting is that Matteo Ricci is trying, is under the auspices of the Portuguese in Macau. He can't really say, oh, you know, you are really brutal people. You know, we come here to convert the Chinese peacefully, and you come with all of this business of war and stuff. Okay? So instead of doing that, he says, well, the Muslims are saying that you're really horrible. I don't say that. Okay? And in Trigo's embellishment and the translation, you can see that. Now, further proof of that, we need to go to 1700. In the 1700, a French Jesuit, Charles Le Gobien, and by the way, here's a hint. If you're a French or Italian Jesuit, you're a little bit more critical of you know, imperialism at that period because you don't have an empire yourself. Okay? If you're Portuguese and you're, or Spanish, it's a different story. Okay. Charles Gobien lives, in, uh, lives in, in, in Paris, you know, and he writes a book about the history of the Mariana Islands. That's basically in the Pacific in Guam, you know, and he talks about the Spanish conquests of Guam in the 17th century. That's the history that he writes. And in that history that he writes, he brings a primary source that is incredibly rare. What's that primary source? It is a speech by 
a, 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 a Mariana Island aristocrat by the name Hurao. And Hurao gives a speech that basically, um, you could basically think that this comes out of, you know, someone who is a, um, a climate activist uh, from today. And this is the speech written by Charles Le Gobien, theoretically or ostensibly by, said by Hurao in the Mariana Islands. The Europeans would have done better to remain in their own country. They have no need uh, of their help to live happily. Satisfied with what their islands to furnish us, they desire nothing else. The knowledge which they have given us only increased our needs and stimulated our desires. They find it evil that we do not dress, that if that were necessary, uh, nature would have provided us with clothes. They treat us as gross people and regard us as barbarians, but we, we do have uh, but do we have to believe them under the excuse of instructing us? They are corrupting us. They take away uh, uh, from us the primitive simplicity in which we live. You know, they dare to take away our liberty, uh, uh, which we should be dearer than life itself. They try to persuade us that we will be happier, etc., um, uh, etc. Et and then he goes on also how they destroy their, um, their environment. If you can keep reading, this is a serious indictment of basically of what we of European colonialism that we are very very familiar of later periods. Okay, now, Carlo Ginzburg, in a very very uh, um, this is the part against the um, against the, the environment. You can read it as I'm talking. Carlo Ginzburg, you know, worked on this particular uh, section by uh, in by Charles Legobia, and he shows how basically Charles Legobia invents that as a critique of Spanish imperialism in that period, and he invents the speech by Hurao. You know, this is basically something that, you know, Jesuits have been doing, you know, in order to criticize uh, um, a, a European imperialism, but they're putting it in the mouth of natives, okay? Now, in the wake of that, what I submit to you, that the origins of that practice begins with Matteo Ricci's, and, but he, he goes with a familiar adversary. He doesn't invent, you know, a Chinese uh, aristocrat. He goes to be, he wants to be more familiar with the, uh, 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 he wants to do something that would be more familiar to European eyes, so he basically puts it in the mouth of an imaginary Muslim, okay? So this is how he gets to, to it. And indeed, we have now, we have two competing images. We have, you know, a Muslim enemy, clearly appears there in his passage, but also a noble Saracen. Okay, and indeed, you know, um, recent studies of particular images of Islam and Muslims in late medieval Italy, er, in other words, about a hundred years or a little, than, a little less than hundred years before Richie's time, you see that there are two images coming up. In other words, Italy was different in its appreciation of Islam. You know, some of the Italian depictions of, uh, 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 of Muslims were of Muslim enemies, you know, but Towards the late Middle Ages, something different. This is clearly connected to the Venetian trade and, and others. You have something these becoming as the noble Saracens. Well, I submit to you that you know these two competing images actually appear in Matteo Ricci's depiction of that scene that I was doing. But then there is the final question as to why does he do all of that? In other words, why all the lies, why all of these notations, etc., etc., etc. And that has to do with the goings on in the Indian Ocean at the time that he's there. Not only the time that he's there, in the exact same year and the exact same month. And here's how it goes. In 1578, Sebastian was killed in Morocco. 
Um, you know, King Sebastian, the Portuguese king in Morocco, it was replaced by Don Enrique, who was very sick, and so on, in Lisbon. The Spaniards, the Spanish made a move on the Lisbon crown and basically took over, and took over uh, you know, the kingdom of Portugal. They had their own territories in the, um, they had their own territories in, of course, in South America, right here, okay? In Mexico and in Cartagena de Indias and of course in Peru and so on. And they have been pushing silver to the Indian Ocean from these territories. And they started to sail uh, from that. Then at some point in the, in the 1570s, they take the Philippines and they take Manila. Okay, that really angers the, the Portuguese. And at the time that we are talking about, in 1582, someone comes from, uh, um, someone comes from the Spanish uh, in, uh, territories in South America, he comes to Manila, yes, um, and that man, his name is, uh, Manila becomes a very important hub for Spanish activity in this area. And this man, Alonso Sanchez is his name, you know, is tasked with a delicate task. Basically, he needs to make sure that the Portuguese territories in the, ocean, in the Indian Ocean swear allegiance to the Spanish king, because now the Spanish king is the sole ruler of Iberia, having taken the crown of Portugal. So it's a very, very delicate thing, and soon he realizes, by the way, that you know, they need to do it without angering the Chinese, because the Chinese, finally they think that they tamed the Portuguese, now they have another uh, uh, group of people coming in, you know, perhaps even more horrible, which are the Spanish. So, Alonso Sanchez is very, very boastful, you know, talking a lot, you know, he's like, he was in Mexico, he saw how, you know, the Spanish destroyed Mexico, they did all of this, they converted people really, really quickly, they forced them to convert or to die, they had all of these successes, all of this silver, all of this gold, everything is theirs, okay? And he says to Manila, and Manila it's pretty much the same thing, he sits there with the Bishop of Manila, someone by the name of Domingo Salazar, and they basically come up with two ideas. They say, look, the Portuguese are wimps. You know, they've been here for 70 years. They haven't done anything. They barely sit in Macau. They never really made a move on China. We are gonna make a move on China, okay? So he goes from Manila. He tries to get to Macau, but there's a mistake and he gets to a territory here, to another province in Fujian. In Fujian, he's treated really, really badly. And remember, he's used to be a Spanish person in, in South America, you know, where everybody's bowing to him. But suddenly, you know, it's a different story. So the Chinese magistrate in Fujian interrogates him. He shows him a letter and says, like, this is me. Um, I'm an ambassador. I'm a diplomat. And the Chinese says, like, I don't care who you are. I don't care about all of this. First of all, you know, all the entourage of the armed men that you have with you, they stay here. They're all going to be imprisoned, you know. And after much begging, he let him leave. He let him leave, uh, lets him leave to move to Cantonese. Uh, on. This whole thing is completely comical. He converted a man from Bengal by the name of, gave him the name Alonso. And that Bengali man only few, knew few words in Chinese. Couldn't really, really talk, you know. So th that makes it all even more and more sophisticated, more complicated uh, for him. And he's really, really angered by the fact that the Chinese are quite arrogant. So he comes to Canton. He comes to Canton. And he's even treated even more badly. In other words, someone demands to see his paperwork. Someone tells him that he can't carry weapons. You know, someone tells him that he cannot move freely. You know, 
etc., etc., etc. And this man, by the way, he has a facility for drama, and he writes in this. Um, uh, <clears throat> he, he now gets a better interpreter. But now, when he interviews with the officials in Canton, one of the interpreters says, "Well, you see, the Spanish people—they are an evil folk who went about the world robbing kingdoms and killing their lawful rulers, and whatsoever land they entered, they took it for their own." Okay, so the Chinese are not naive at all. They're even more suspicious of the Spanish person. Okay. Now Sanchez writes about this experience, and he, for him, it was horrible. Okay, he was, you know, he was tortured. Just imagine, you know, it's like trying to to come to the, uh, the immigration in, in JFK and you know and present your visa to an angry, grumpy uh, um, official in of the U.S. immigration. You know, I mean, who doesn't like you? Okay. Well, you know, that's for, of course make him very, very angry. This scene. You know, it seems to me that we were prisoners waiting on the same ship for permission to travel inland and suspected that despite the Chinese cordiality, they were going to put us to death with great show. In other words, not just to execute us, but to make a whole show of us. I feared that at the end there would be a prison without hope or su of supper or bed or lodging. How horrible, you know, not only are they gonna be in prison, you know, no bed and no, no food as well, okay? Um, and he was so traumatized, he spent the rest of his life mired in the lasting physical and psychological results of the voyage to China. In other words, he was really, really traumatized by the Chinese. And what he did when he finally gets to Macau is to convince everybody, all who would listen, that China would only hear the word of God by listening first to the sword. Okay. In other words, what we have here is someone very, very powerful from the Jesuit order, but a subject of Spain coming in and says, let's start a war with the Chinese. And indeed, he talks about it all the time, and later on he comes up with a very, very elaborate plan of war. This is how he think, this is how he felt he was treated in Canton. You know, like basically it was like a whole, you know, the passion of Christ, you know, how, they, he, how he describes it, okay? Um, and he comes up with a, a very, very elaborate plan, which they later on submitted to the king of, uh, king of Spain. But in the time, they're talking about it in Macau, yes. Um, and basically, the plan is as follows. You know, they will suggest to the Chinese to convert to Christianity. And if the king of China refuses, they will start a war. That's the plan. And then they will invade. And there are numbers, first of all, they will invade with 6,000 soldiers. Remember, these are the people who took, uh, who went, Cortes went with 500 soldiers to the Americas. Okay, these are the same people. Now, 6,000 people, you know, to invade China in that uh, uh, period, you know, etc., uh, 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 etc. Et Later on, they inflate the number to 200,000. They think about, you know, some aid from Japan and some aid from uh, uh, Portugal and from India. You know, big, big invasion and big war uh, uh, with China. Serge Gruzinski recently wrote a book about uh, that plan. Um, he talks about it um, without, you know, some of the details that I'm trying to bring here in terms of Islam. But at the end of the day, he also assigns a rule, a, a role for the Jesuits. He had met. Richie and he met Michele Ruggeri, another Jesuit, and he was very, very impressed by the fact that they already knew Chinese pretty well and they were good interpreters. 
So he wants to harness their linguistic skills into this war plan. And he says, the Jesuits will serve as interpreters and persuade the Chinese to allow the Spaniards to enter in peace and to hear and receive the preachers and accept the religion sent them by God. They will tell the Chinese of the protection of his majesty, the king of Spain desires to offer them so they may receive the Spaniards without fear and how great a favor he's doing them in freeing them from the tyrannies of their mandarins. That's the plan. In other words, this man is sitting with Matteo Ricci, or about Matteo Ricci, and says, this is what you're going to do in China. Not dialogue with civilizations. You're going to be the vanguard of an invasion war, of an invading expedition. Okay, that's what you're going to do. Okay? Ricci is fully aware of that. Okay? And in a letter that he wrote only a few months after that episode to a colleague in, in Italy, he writes, you know, there were center Spaniards coming from the New World or the West Indies, which to us are Oriental. In other words, you know, they were coming from the East. Okay? He's speaking from a very, very Chinese point of view at that point. Okay? Among them, you know, there are uh, Franciscan fathers who with much fervor, you know, um, um, Sanchez was accompanied also by Franciscans, he, but he was a Jesuit. With much further, thinking that China was already converted, you know, and they were surprised to realize that, you know, no one had been converted in China. That was a shock to them and it angered them, okay? They came to trouble. And also our father, our father here makes a reference to uh, 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 Sanchez, who is now returning in a shuttle, and then he stops in the letter and he says, and I do not know how surely we have the opportunity to write. In other words, he hints to his colleague in Italy that, you know, maybe we can't really voice our criticisms about, you know, what's going on here. This is, a third, this is another clue for me that explains what he writes in November about Muslims. In other words, he basically uses this trope of the fraudulent Muslim, the resisting, the sabotaging Moor, you know, in order to subvert a plant of war that is now really in the making in his region. And by the way, has a plan for himself. Okay. Um, and then, you know, only Two years later, you know, um, he says he allowed to settle in China, and he says we have many tribulations, even to the point of accused of being accused falsely of very serious things at the suggestions of an ancient adversary. That's basically a reference to this to Satan, but I'm saying also a reference to all sorts of other things that he hides into it. But from all of this, God had freed us, and His name be blessed throughout the ages. And he writes that as it is more and more becoming clear that Spain is going to abandon the plan of war, yes? And partly is because, you know, it is very, he is allowed to settle in China and proselytize um, Christianity peacefully by way of dialogue as opposed to violence, you know? And the reason, and when there is a debate in Spain about the plan of war that Sanchez is suggesting, you know, they say, look, you know, I mean, we don't need to invade. Some Jesuits are already allowed to settle in China and do their missionary work, so maybe war is not a good idea, okay? Um, so that is why he did all of that, and this is how the Muslims of Canton Save China in 1582. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute.